The reading comes from the book of John, chapter 12, 12, 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ben. Ben's probably one of the few people in this room who will know what this slide is referring to. Yes, he does. Thumbs up. Um, yes, uh, as Flick said, we're continuing the John series, and it so happens when you do a series spread out over a really long time, you land on passages that don't seem to line up with the church calendar, like we did Palm Sunday already. But nevertheless, it's a passage that we can learn a lot from, so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Have you ever seen someone famous and gone a bit crazy in your reaction. So this is what the reference to the slide is. When I was in about year eight, I think, and my sister Kath, Catherine was in like grade five, and our family was at the Romano's family restaurant in Upper Hutterberg Ride, Ivanhoe, pizza and pasta, and we're having a Saturday um, evening family meal together. We're sitting there just, you know, doing that awkward thing of the family, eating, you know, their meal together. And who should walk into the restaurant but Ivanhoe celebrity Wilbur Wilde if it, from uh, Hey Head Saturday. And my, Catherine just went, that's Wilbur Wilde at the top of her voice. And I was like so embarrassed. My cousin Nathan, he's an artist manager. He manages like pop singers and Americans. And, and, and Nathan's spent a lot of time with famous people. He's been in the room in the hotel room with Elton John and he's been in the studio with Kanye West and met Eminem in his hotel room, all these famous people. And he says that he actually has to train his artists on how to meet famous people because he says it's often a very embarrassing interaction when a not very famous person meets a very famous person because people just lose the plot and go a bit crazy. The thing about fame and popularity is it's very fleeting. People go in and out of fame, don't they? Think of Ellen DeGeneres. So she's still very famous, but her popularity, she was a Hollywood darling for like 20 years, and over the last year, she somehow lost her popularity all of a sudden. Um, people started turning on her and saying she was a bully in the workplace and all this sort of thing, and her, her show's going to finish soon. Despite what, what that famous song by Irene Cara called Fame says... Uh, you know, fame is not going to teach you to fly. It's not going to do that. You won't make it to heaven from fame and it's not, you're not going to light up the sky with a flame. It's from the song. And yet we want to be liked and we get excited by others who are popular. So in the sermon this morning, I, I want to look at the intersection between popularity and Christian faith. I'm interested in the time when Jesus was his most popular and when he was also unpopular, 
And I'm interested in what it means to be a Christian when Jesus is unpopular. So this is the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It's a famous story that demonstrates Jesus' fame and popularity that we read on Palm Sunday. The day before, he'd been at Mary and Martha's house and Mary famously put her expensive perfume that she'd saved up for on Jesus' feet and this was a, a, a demonstration of her devotion. And now Jesus was heading into the city of Jerusalem. And as he does this, there are two separate crowds who meet up with him. The first crowd are those who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they went out to meet Jesus because they'd heard about his teaching and they'd heard that he'd done miracles and they just wanted to be close to this amazing spiritual leader. They saw him as some kind of saviour king figure and they brought out palm branches and waved them at him. Palm branches signified victory. Um, and they were waving them because they wanted to champion him on. He hadn't yet had this victory, but it was like they were saying, you're going to have a big victory. Palm branches also remind us of if, if we're reading the Bible as a whole, um, not just this bit in John, but if we read Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, it tells us of the conquering martyrs who held palm branches in their hands. And so perhaps John, who wrote both Revelation and the Gospel of John, is pointing to both images here. Here, the branches in Revelation, they were given as praise for the victory that the Messiah had over Satan through his conquering death and resurrection. So the crowds at Jerusalem, they shout out this peculiar word, Hosanna. Uh, it's not peculiar now for us because we've had it, heard it so many times as Christians. But Jesus, but at the time it was kind of a peculiar word. It was a mashup of two words. It was from the word save and also the word we implore you. Save, we implore you. And they've sort of made it into this word and they're these kind of this Hebrew, unusual Hebrew word and they're shouting it out. They're saying, we urge you to bring on salvation. Like they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So they're super enthusiastic. They were shouting out, they were praising, they were dancing on the street. Um, all kinds of different things were coming out of their mouth. And then when Jesus does this, as he comes in, in his most popular moment, he, he finds a donkey and he rides it in. And this is partly, well, to, well, mainly to fulfill a prophecy Flick already mentioned earlier from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The prophecy made the point that Israel's future Messiah would be a king of peace. And that is exactly what Jesus is demonstrating here. Perhaps he's trying to hold off any kind of messianic expectation that he's going to lead a political military victory. Now, the disciples knew Jesus was special, and they were probably thinking to themselves, oh, about time everyone has finally realised that Jesus is a, you know, the Messiah and that he should be praised like this. But in actual fact, they didn't really realise the significance of this event. They'd, they'd never seen anything like this. You know, Jesus' popularity was skyrocketing, but also there was lots of imagery before him, them, which they would not fully realise the significance of till later on, until, in fact, until the Holy Spirit was sent to them. 
And only in that point could they see the significance of the palm branches and the donkey and the things that were being shouted out. Now, I said there were two crowds, so we've heard about the first crowd, but the second crowd appears in verse 17. This was a different crowd to the group who were waving the palm branches. The second crowd was from Bethany, which is where Mary and Martha were from, where Jesus had been the day before. And so they're particularly excited because they'd heard about or potentially even seen the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They were so moved that they had responded by going around telling everyone and, and spreading the word about Jesus. Through their promotions, many more people came out. And all of this attention on Jesus from the crowd caused the Pharisees to feel pessimistic. See, they said to themselves, this is getting us nowhere. Our attempts to sort of shut down Jesus' ministry, we're not getting anywhere. They're failing at, you know, at stopping Jesus from raising to, rising to prominence. And then you can hear them say this kind of prophetic hyperbole. They say, the whole world is going after him. Now, in one sense, it's hyperbole because the whole world is certainly not going after them. It's just two crowds in Jerusalem. But in another sense, it's prophetic because soon the whole world will go after him. The thing is, while these crowds were jubilant on this day, within a week, another set of crowd, maybe some of the same people, probably not exactly the same people, but certainly another big crowd in the same city would be shouting different things to Jesus. They would be shouting angrily, with hostility. They'd be mocking him and they'd be sending him to his death. The city would turn on Jesus as quickly as it turned towards Jesus. And this placed huge psychological pressure on the disciples. With the city turning on Jesus and with him being hung out to dry, some of the disciples started worrying that they were going to get arrested themselves for being associated with Jesus. And as we know famously, if you've read the story or heard the story of Easter, even the Apostle Peter, who was one of the key leaders of the disciples, denied even knowing Jesus three times. Within a week, he's gone from being Elvis to being, you know, Saddam Hussein, like, like the most hated person at the time. And so Peter's like, can't, can't keep up. If we think about ourselves, it's relatively easy for us to sing the praises of Jesus when we are amongst our Christian friends and family. We can come to church and feel safe to praise his name, like we've done this morning. But the challenge for the Christian disciple is to be able to shout, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, when Jesus is unpopular, or when we are among people who do not like Jesus. How do you go when it feels bad to praise Jesus? Like, it feels bad in the sense that, you know, you might get people looking at you strangely or disliking you for praising Jesus? How do you respond when the public mood turns on Jesus? Peter and the disciples were timid because they were afraid of their lives. They were afraid that they might actually get executed as well. But for us, the problem is we become concerned about our own popularity. We want our friends, family, we want our colleagues to like us. 
If Jesus is unpopular with our friends and we admit to following Jesus, will that make us unpopular too? That's what we often think. And so we hold back on being open about our faith, talking about our Christian lives to our friends who are not Christians. There are different ways to respond when the culture and the community around you or your friends around you don't like Jesus or don't like Christianity or don't like the church. And one of those ways is to become aggressively outspoken about Jesus. You might have seen some Christians in the media being like this, thinking like it's their responsibility to tell everyone the truth and they're just going to be really super aggressive about it. You know, you might not like what Jesus says, but he is the way, the truth and the life and you've got to believe it. You know, you might have seen that kind of approach. The Swiss reformer uh, John Calvin wrote to a friend who had a great beard, William Farrell. Look at that beard, so good. He had the two points at the end. Now, this was in Geneva. And William Farrell became a controversial preacher in Geneva because he thought it was his duty to be outspoken and aggressive in his preaching and criticising people openly. And he would criticise them from the pulpit, even like people who were important in the community. And he preached like this because he thought he had to preach the truth even if the people were offended because it didn't matter what everyone else thought. You had to speak out the truth. And you can see why this kind of approach is appealing to zealous people. I used to be a bit like this at school when I was a school kid, telling my friends why they were wrong, you know. And in his early years, Calvin, he loved Farrell's approach. He thought, oh, yeah, this is the way to be hardcore, you know. But then over time, he realised, actually, this is really unhelpful. It's not a good way to be effective in your ministry. It put, put people off and... People didn't want to listen to him. So Calvin was concerned for Farrell and he wrote him a letter which talked about how you should be winsome and gracious and loving as a Christian and actually learn to accommodate your friends who actually don't like Jesus or don't like Christianity or don't like the church. Accommodate them but with the view to build trust. Calvin said, though, there are two ways you can accommodate Christians, a wrong way and a right way. The wrong way, actually, is to accommodate people who don't like Jesus and who don't like Christianity by just accommodating your views to their views, to actually water down your faith and to say just a kind of a, a thin version of Christianity so as to make them like you. And what this is really about is promoting your own popularity because you're wanting to stay in your friendship circle and be liked by everyone. And, and so that's not the right approach, says Calvin. And then there's another approach, which is where you, you are, you're a good listener and you, are, you, you try and talk through ideas in a loving and gracious way and you're not out there to try and aggressively smash people. This kind of motive will help you choose your battles carefully. You'll be careful about the context. You'll choose your words carefully. You'll seek to be loving and gracious rather than aggressive or offensive. If you're a Farrell-style zealous Christian, you might see this, as, this kind of accommodating approach as being soft. But in actual fact, this hot-headed approach is 
motivated by pride and ego, there's, there's actually false motives in the arrogant approach. Now, if I was to guess about our congregation, I don't expect there to be many people, if any people here, to be a feral style. That's not our vibe at Mary Creek. We're not one of those churches, I don't think. More likely, I expect that most of us probably, or many of us, shy away about being open about our faith. And we accommodate in that other wrong way, which is just to kind of say not very much at all and to just keep your mouth shut and to not actually try and build trust as a Christian. Now, if this is you, I totally understand. There are times when I am tempted to pretend to not be a Christian. It's hard for me because I'm an Anglican minister and as soon as they say, what do you do for a job? It's very hard to, to, to hide it, you know. It's funny, isn't it? We live in a culture that is, has a contradictory understanding of guilt and shame. On the one hand, guilt and shame is seen in our culture as psychologically unhealthy and the sort of thing that people who abuse power weaponise against those they're trying to control and marginalise. But here's the cultural contradiction. In our anti-guilt and shame culture, people who offend are also made to feel guilty and ashamed. In their shaming, they experience mob outrage, either on social media or on mainstream media. And they can lose their job and be excommunicated from industry. I just saw this week the, the banjo player from Mumford & Sons had to quit his job in the band because of something he said on social media. He was, he was shamed by the, the mob online. So for Christians, perhaps we feel this pressure not to offend and we need to expect, I think, that there will be times when we are shamed as a form of social punishment for our beliefs. Now we just need to be careful that it is the gospel that we are being attacked for and not our perceived loss of power or some kind of culture war issue that is more about left and right politics rather than Jesus. I want to say if you are shy and afraid because of the the, the, the times we live in, there is good news for you. And what you need is to follow Jesus in his suffering and also to invite the Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. If we switch around the order of this sentence, which is okay to do because probably in the Greek it wasn't even in that order, you can see kind of a trajectory here. Participate in his suffering, become like him in his death, but then know the power of his resurrection. See, we need to learn to be winsome and gracious and loving in the way we talk about our faith. We need to show love at all times, but we also need to be bold and actually admit who we are and what we believe. And as we do that and become filled with fear, we need to know that this is how we participate in Jesus' sufferings, one way. If our friend mocks us, this is how we become like Jesus in his death. It's one way we can do that. If your industry marginalises or deplatforms you for being a Christian, this is how you participate in his sufferings and death. But you need to know that as you participate in Jesus' suffering and death, then you also are drawing closer to Jesus. You will know him even more, and you will also know the power of his resurrection. 
and God's resurrection will transform you. But also you can invite the Spirit. You need to invite the Spirit to give you boldness. The same disciples who flip out and hide when Jesus is being arrested and put on trial and executed were able to boldly speak on the day of Pentecost. Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus, was then filled on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit and able to preach to a massive crowd and 3,000 became Christians. And the same Spirit offers you this boldness. God has not abandoned you. He invites you to pray for courage. Standing tall as a disciple of Jesus, even when Jesus is not popular, will cause you to become stronger as a Christian. But also it's an opportunity to become more effective in your ministry. It's easy to praise Jesus when he's popular and it's really hard to praise Jesus when he's hated. But friends, Jesus is our King and Saviour. That's what they shouted on that day with the palm branches. And he won victory for us in his death on the cross. So let's not seek our own glory by watering down our faith and pretending we're not even Christians to our friends and colleagues. Let's stand tall with him. Let's be like our donkey riding saviour and be Christians of peace and grace. So that's what the donkey projected that image. He's a man of peace. Let's speak about our faith with a gentle and understanding tone. Yeah, let's accommodate people but not in a way that cheapens your faith to win popularity. Do it in a way that builds trust and makes people feel safe. Be bold in the power of the Spirit, willing to share in your suffering and death, and know the power of his resurrection. Let's pray for those things. Look, oh, we, we know that um, in different settings, it's not cool to be a Christian. In fact, in some settings, people will look at you with scorn for various reasons. We pray that we can be bold. We can have an understanding of Christian suffering that is healthy and know that that is part of the deal. And we want to be Christians who really do know you and know you in the context of that suffering and that resurrection power. Amen.